North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Victor, Sue, it is great to talk to both of you on the eve of the President Biden-President Moon summit this week. This is the 10th time that President Moon has met with the United States president, but it's the first time he's met with President Biden. So there's a lot to be discussed here. Victor, how do you see the key issues in this meeting and what do you think is going to come of this summit? It's clearly a very important meeting, right, because it's the first meeting with Biden, comes off of the backs of a lot of activity in Asia to rejuvenate the alliances after Trump, right? Blinken going to the region, then the National Security Advisor from South Korea coming to meet with Jake Sullivan. And so this is a big piece of it, right? The first summit meeting right after Suga, right, uh, really showing how much the Biden White House places on uh, these alliances with Japan and Korea. So I think it's very important in that respect. It's also already off to a good start in the sense that the one sort of bothersome issue that had held up the Trump administration for, all, for a long time, the special measures agreement, the cost sharing agreement, that basically remained unresolved for four years of Trump and it completely sucked all the oxygen out of the room in the alliance. So that's been done, right? That's been taken care of a good deal that both sides are, are happy with. That, you know, they've restarted bilateral defense dialogues. So the machinery is starting to move again in the alliance after after it had been frozen for a good four years. And so, you know, Moon is coming to Washington. He's got a lot on his mind that we can talk about, but he's coming to Washington to sort of signal that the alliance is moving forward after a difficult period. And I think both sides are going to try to work very hard to make the optic as positive as possible to define that narrative going forward. Victor, you said something interesting just now, that over the last four years, the alliance was troubled by cost-sharing issues. And, and I think what you're referring to, namely, is that President Trump wanted a lot more money from South Korea for us to maintain our security commitments. How has that changed with Biden's approach? So Biden's gone back to a much more traditional approach, which is that cost sharing is about sharing, right? It's about sharing the non-personal costs of stationing U.S. forces in Korea. It's not about the United States military as mercenaries or what Trump used to refer to as cost plus. It's the cost of maintaining U.S. forces plus a commission that countries should pay for the U.S. role. You know, for Trump, that commission was on the order of $4 billion off what is effectively a $1 billion tab, right? For it's a big commission. Rate. Yeah, it's a pretty big commission. I mean, I, you know, I guess if he could get it, that he would be considered a good businessman, maybe not a good alliance manager, but a good businessman. But obviously, that would be political suicide for any 
not just South Korean president, any leader, Japan, Germany, anywhere, you know, to be sort of strong armed like that. So, you know, I think, you know, Biden probably thought all that stuff was nonsense and has allowed the professional negotiators to take over. And they worked out a very good six year deal where South Korea is paying, you know, double digit percentage more than they have in the past. And the important thing is it's a six year deal. So we don't have to deal with this issue, you know, until long after the first term of Biden and certainly not under the Moon government anymore. So it's taking it off the plate, which is a good thing. So this has left everybody happy now and able to cooperate on alliance matters. Right, and to focus on the more important things like North Korea, right? Yeah. So speaking of North Korea, Sue, what is happening with the policy review that the Biden team is undertaking on North Korea, on the alliance, on all what's been going on for the last several years? Yeah, so the Biden administration just completed the North Korea policy review and, and then it sort of announced it and was saying, you know, this is going to be a new approach. They are pursuing a calibrated, practical approach on denuclearization, sort of a phased agreement that they're going to be very realistic about this. And, you know, both the U.S. and the South Korean side, they are going to show that they are coordinating very closely on North Korea policy. That's going to be their emphasis, that they've been working together. They're coordinating very closely. And it's true. They've been coordinating very closely. There are two plus two meetings. Tokyo Seoul, they had a meeting on the sidelines of G7. They are working closely and coordinating closely. And all of this sounds good in theory, right? It's logical, of course, let's now pursue a practical approach. Who can argue against that? But in practice, because there's not a whole lot of details about this North Korea policy review, it appears to a lot of us like uh, there's kind of like a it's sort of like Obama redux because even though they say it's not, in reality, we have Kim Jong-un who is insisting that he's not giving up anything until U.S. makes unilateral gestures first, like lifting sanctions, even for step-by-step approach, which is obviously a non-starter for the Biden administration. So in reality, it's the impasse continues, much to Moon Jae-in administration's frustration. So I do think, you know, this is going to be, uh, I'm not sure if there's going to be a deliverable in terms of North Korea out of this summit. They're going to talk about it. President Moon Jae-in is probably going to urge President Biden to be even more forward-leaning on North Korea, possibly suggesting that Biden meet with Kim Jong-un or urge Biden administration to at least appoint a new special envoy, a representative for North Korea to show that North Korea is still a high priority for the Biden administration, talk about what kind of incentives that can be offered to North Korea. So I expect President Moon to start, try to ask President Biden to be even more forward-leaning and be even more flexible. But ultimately, I don't, this is not one area where there's going to be a deliverable, at least on North Korea. There's going to be other issues that they, they can deliver on, but not necessarily on North Korea. One concern I do have is that President Moon, with barely a year left in the office, the administration is pretty, I mean, I don't want to use the word desperate, but what's the right word? Like they, they, are, they, are, they have a sense desperate. of urgency. That's the right word. <laughs> That's the right word. Um, right. right. So there's a great sense of urgency trying to, to make a breakthrough on North Korea. So I hope that President Moon is a little bit sensitive and doesn't come out too strongly because they're not 100% on, on the same page, even though the message they're going to try to deliver is that they're on the same page and they're working very, very closely on North Korea policy. So you were just saying that President Moon is going to try to convince President Biden to meet with Kim Jong-un. What do you both think about are the prospects for that actually happening? President Biden 
did say that he's at least willing to meet with Kim Jong-un, but not just willy-nilly. There has to be some progress that's made, right? That Kim Jong-un has to sort of show that there, it's, it's just not going to be like Trump-Kim meeting where you just meet without anything has you know, been agreed on. So I think that's still a tough sell because North Korea has not shown any interest in terms of returning to dialogue. North Korean stance right now is pretty hard line that U.S. has to make unilateral gesture first that's significant, like some sort of sanctions relief, something to even get the dialogue going. So given North Korea's pre-hardline stance, I don't see the Biden administration going there. And to be very frank, to me, the way I read North Korea policy review is I think the Biden administration understands that they're not making a huge progress. There's no breakthrough here. So they're not expecting breakthrough with North Korea announcing this policy. So to me, this policy is mainly designed as a hoarding action. So they can say they're doing something on North Korea. There's a policy review. They've been trying to reach out to North Koreans and back channel and so on while they're actually working on things that's more pressing to them. You know, China, global warming, Israel, you know, fight against coronavirus. There's a lot of stuff, right? Building back better at home. So this team knows that they're not going to make progress on North Korea. So again, I, there's going to be nice talk coming out of this summit about everybody working very closely on North Korea. But this is not where I, I see any kind of breakthrough happening. Victor, what are the Biden team's expectations for this summit? Well, first on North Korea, I, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I think that they're going to publicly try to show that there's no daylight between the two of them trying to deflect, you know, what is the more popular narrative, which is Moon is desperate for some progress and trying to pull Biden in. I think they're going to try to convey that publicly. But, you know, we all know that there are gaps in the way the Moon government thinks about this and folks in the in the Biden government. And I, I agree. I mean, I think that this is very much a holding action because, you know, we could wrap ourselves around the axle trying to figure out all these great policies that we want to try to throw at the North Koreans. But if they don't show any interest and they have not shown any interest in negotiation right now, you know, why bother? Why bother doing that? And so I think that the notion that this is kind of a holding action is true. Now, having said that, I do not at all ex- uh, exclude the possibility that there could actually be very vigorous negotiations between the Biden administration and North Korea if there's interest. And I think that's, you know, for three reasons. The first is personnel, right? I mean, you've got people like Kagan, Rosenberger, and of course, Campbell, who've been around the block a few times on this issue. You know, and we all know Kurt. Kurt's a good friend of everybody at CSIS. And, you know, he is one of the most creative foreign policy thinkers when it comes to Asia. So I think that's one reason. The other is that I could be wrong here, but sort of the domestic political side of the North Korea issue is just not as salient as in the past, because Biden may not do like Trump and meet with the North Korean leader, but Biden could if he wanted to, because the Republican president met with Kim three times, right? Followed him around Asia three times to meet with him. And so the notion that the Republicans all of a sudden would say, you dare not meet with the worst human rights abuser in history. That's kind of a hard argument for them to make when, you know, the guy they've been supporting for four years is... is Yeah, sure is. And then the third is... And I could be wrong on this also, but sanctions, right? I mean, the argument always with North Korea is sanction them, sanction them, sanction them, right? That's always the argument that tries to block engagement inside the U.S. government. 
But you could credibly make the argument that North Korea has been under the toughest sanctions ever over the last 16 months because of COVID. They self-imposed it, right, by shutting down the border with China. You know, they're under, under the harshest sanctions that anybody could ever put on them, right? Not even trade with China. There's no trade with China. And it has they put the sanctions become, on themselves in a they sense, They put the right? sanctions on themselves, right? And it's not like the North Koreans are running back to the table looking for a negotiation because they're hurting from sanctions. So I think when the opportunity presents itself, some of the traditional obstacles to engagement in, you know, within the U.S. government, some of those, I think, are, you know, very different than when they were when Sue and I and others were working on these issues, right? So that might make it a little bit different. But we're still not at the starting line because the North Koreans haven't shown up. They haven't shown up yet. What's your sense of some of the creative ideas that are floating around the White House among Kurt Campbell and others who are engaged in this policy? Is, is there any, anything that we should know about in advance of the summit? You know, I think if they have any creative ideas, this is certainly not the time to share them. They're probably holding them close to their vest and waiting for the right opportunity. You know, I think right now the policy imperative is just to show that two allies are in lockstep and not showing any daylight. And then you know, when the opportunity presents itself, you know, they may have types of sanctions they want to unroll. They may be thinking about humanitarian assistance. You know, there are a whole variety of things. It's not like the U.S. government doesn't have everything from mundane to interesting ideas about engaging North Korea. I mean, we Sue and I have seen them. I mean, there are some sort of typical ideas about, and there are some really out of the box. It's not like the U.S. government hasn't thought of these things. They have thought of these things. But the problem, you know, has always been, you got to have two to tango, right? And then if yeah. the North Koreans aren't interested, you can throw them every sort of carrot from the mundane to the most luxurious one. And it doesn't matter, right, if they're not interested in coming to the table. So I know there's a lot of focus on the policy review and what the policy review would produce. But in the end, it still matters that North Korea has to be interested. And like Sue said, they don't seem to be interested right now. Sue, let me ask you this. With what's happened to North Korea regarding COVID, we've talked about this on The Impossible State before. Don't we have an opportunity with medical diplomacy to reach out to them to kind of come to uh, uh, some form of discussion, even just to start? Yeah, I mean, vaccine diplomacy is something that could be considered. North Koreans, we know, are still very paranoid about COVID. They just announced that they're not going to participate in the World Cup qualifier next month, I think it was supposed to be, because of coronavirus concerns. But all in all, that's true. So I, I'm sure this is something that the Biden administration thought of, but it's, it's unclear if that's enough for Kim Jong-un to return to talks. I do think that what happened in Hanoi and that truly humiliating result from Hanoi summit and that return home, I mean, I think for North Koreans to show up again, they need to be certain themselves that there's going to be some some big progress made. And, and I do think here it's going to be a big sanctions relief. But I mean, I don't I don't discount vaccine diplomacy. Actually, one of the key deliverables of this U.S.-South Korea summit, President Moon and Biden summit, one of the deliverables here is actually vaccine partnership, because actually South Koreans, uh, this is also very, very important for President Moon to secure some sort of uh, agreement on vaccine partnership, because despite the success that South Koreans have had with initially dealing with coronavirus, they've been very slow in terms of vaccine rollout. 
and that has caused all kinds of unhappiness and disappointment by the public. So anyway, it is critical for President Moon to also get that's going to be one of the deliverables out of the summit too. But to answer your question about North Korea, I mean, I don't discount it. I just don't know if it's enough for, for it to have a breakthrough on the nuclear issue front. Well, it's a pretty big deal that they would bow out of the qualifiers for World Cup. I mean, to their south, they've got some really, really good soccer players on the South Korean team. One of the best players in the world, Sun, who plays for Tottenham in the Premier League, to just to name one. So they really are still paranoid and not willing to engage. I, don't, I do think this is genuine paranoia. They're not making that up. They are also not coming to going to Tokyo Olympics. So this is actually kind of dismaying from the South Korean perspective because they want to use kind of sports diplomacy to have some sort of breakthrough in North Korea as it happened with Winter Pyeongchang Olympics in the beginning of 2018. But yeah, I, I, North Koreans are, I think they're pretty serious about how paranoid they are. I have to ask Victor because he's written some books about sports diplomacy when it comes to Korea. What do you think, you know, about the not going to the Olympics, not qualifying? I mean, are they just really withdrawing from the world even more? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, these sports, you know, are important to make, but they're also, they're quite important to North Korea. Sports and being able to participate in the Olympics and in World Cup qualifiers, you know, that's very important to them. And the fact that they've said publicly they're not going to do that really shows that, you know, one, it shows how paranoid they are. Two, it shows they're so afraid of getting the virus in their country. And three, they have no vaccines, right? They have no vaccines yet. I mean, they're supposed to get some this summer, but nothing even close to herd immunity. So so they're, they're, they're a long ways off. Yeah. Are they getting the vaccine from China or is it coming from the world community? Well, they've said publicly that they don't want anything except WHO approved vaccines. And so I don't think the Chinese vaccine has been approved by the WHO. So if the, even if the Chinese offered, I don't know if they would, you know, at least according to their public position, they, whether they would actually take it. Interesting. Sue mentioned vaccine diplomacy in South Korea. So if I could just piggyback onto that. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the reasons why the Moon government has not raised expectations about some big breakthrough in North Korea coming out of the Biden summit is because their real focus is what they really want is a deliverable on vaccines. And the problem is not that South Korea doesn't have enough vaccines. They do have enough. They have nearly, have secured a supply of nearly 100 million, which is twice the population. But the problem is it's not coming till like the fourth quarter of this year. But politically, they promised herd immunity by November, which means they need vaccines now. They don't need them in November and December. They need them like now. Because they, they've only vaccinated 1% of the population, fully vaccinated, only 1%. Which is astonishing because they were so far ahead of the pandemic compared to everybody else at the beginning. Yeah. And they, you know, they, they miscalculated, in, you know, they make it a market decision not to purchase the mRNA vaccines because they were too expensive at the time, thinking the price would go down and it, it didn't. And then they fell behind the curve in terms of getting on the waiting list. So Moon's got a huge problem now because he's promised herd immunity by November and he's got no vaccines, right? He's got some, some AZ and some, but he's got no vaccines. So I mean, super got, you know, we've been like bombarded by Koreans all week, you know, coming into Washington sort of saying vaccines, we need vaccines. That's the big deliverable for the summit. And, you know, it's difficult because the problem is, is, you know, although Biden has announced we have an 80 million surplus that we're going to give away to the world, by 
the expert criteria, South Korea doesn't really qualify, right? Because they're not poor. Yeah, there's a long line for that vaccine. Yeah, and they're not poor. It's not like they haven't secured a supply. They have, right? More than what they need. And it's not like they have a runaway pandemic in the country, right? They've controlled it really well. So they don't qualify in that sense. So, you know, that's, I think, going to be the big struggle inside the U.S. government about for alliance managers who are saying we still need to do this because they're an ally, you know, all this other stuff. We need a good optic for the summit. Whereas you got your bureaucratic side that's going to say, well, you know, they don't fit the criteria for getting these things. It's classic sort of problem when it comes to, to symmetry. But the other thing, again, that Sue mentioned was there could be production, right, where South Korea could become a producer of these vaccines and work with the United States to distribute them around the world. Those are the kind of things we recommended in our alliance report, right? Our CSIS Commission alliance report was we called them new frontier issues for the alliance that was not just about artillery and the DMZ, but was about some of these global health diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy, things like that. How far do you think they're going to get in this summit on the issue of vaccine diplomacy? I think there will be some sort of agreement. There is, you know, this vaccine swap idea also makes sense. And, you know, South Korea has approved right now Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson vaccine while they're waiting for Moderna and Novavax. So, so just so I understand this, the swap would be we put up vaccine now and get paid back later when theirs is delivered in November. Because that's not going to be a problem for them. They have them. They bought it. It's coming. It's just not coming fast enough. Right. They only started vaccinating people on February 25th. They were just very slow just in terms of rollout. And that, I mean, public is greatly frustrated with this. There was this Gallup Korea survey that showed for the first time negative feedback on government's handling of this whole response outweigh the positives. When this was supposed to be the issue that people were okay with, were happy about with the Moon administration, his handling of COVID, right? So now people are very unhappy. So this is critical issue for the Moon administration. And I do think this is the key deliverable that President Moon is looking for out of this summit. There's other things that, you know, they're cooperating on between Washington and Seoul. They're going to say, you know, climate and, and technology and so on. There are going to be announcements on Korean investments that's important for the Biden administration on technology. But for the Moon administration, some sort of agreement on deliverable and vaccine or vaccine swap agreement is what they're looking for. That's fascinating. I mean, I think a lot of us haven't been keyed in on the fact that they've fallen so far behind and now could use a little bit of help from, you know, one of their top allies. Yeah. At the beginning of this whole pandemic, when we were sort of short on PPE, the South Koreans had surplus PPE because they had prepared for these sorts of things. And they had a list of countries they were going to send them to. And when the U.S. requested, and some U.S. states like Governor Hogan requested PPE and stuff. South Koreans put the U.S. at the top of the list, even though, you know, we might not have met all the criteria for these sorts of things. But yeah, you know, I think you know, there's a lot of talk about vaccine swap. I mean, that's going to be a battle inside the White House to get that to happen. I think some of these other things about vaccine partnership are very doable and they're very good for the alliance because you know, South Korea has an incredible sort of bioscience base. They could easily whether it's 
a manufacturing agreement or it's, you know, it's a licensing agreement, they could produce these vaccines, huge quantities for distribution around the world. And, you know, whether you're talking about what Samsung Biologics or, or SK Bios, I mean, these companies are top of the line. And so they could do this in partnership with the U.S. and really help the world on the vaccine side. Now, the Koreans were second to meet with Biden when you look at, you know, President Biden first met with Suga, as we mentioned, you know, of Japan, as you all mentioned at the beginning of this. Is there something the United States needs to do beyond what we've talked about to make Korea feel as important and as connected to the United States as they might perceive Japan to be? Well, I think actually, I mean, Koreans recognize, okay, they're number two, but the fact that this is the second in-person summit for President Biden and South Korea is still number two after Japan. And that really shows this administration's priority in the Indo-Pacific region on reinvigorating U.S. alliances, Japan and South Korea. So they're kind of used to it, right? They're, they're coming behind Japan. You know, the Koreans I spoke to, they're perfectly fine with this. They recognize, wow, wow, this, we're still before UK, we're still before Australia and Canada. For Israel. That's exactly right. So I think this really does show this administration's emphasis and priority in the Indo-Pacific region and the managing core alliances with East Asian countries like Japan and South Korea. So Koreans should be happy with that. And I think they are, they recognize that. I agree with that. And I think there's really a potential to make this a really good summit. I mean, I think there's really potential there because, you know, there's the North Korea piece of it. They need to project unity on this. But, you know, they got the burden sharing thing done. You know, there's a lot of potential on vaccine diplomacy, vaccine partnership. And then like on the investments that Sue mentioned, right, there's going to be big investments that are going to be announced on chip making, electronic vehicles, on lithium batteries, like huge investments that are going to be made by South Korean companies in the United States, you know, in Georgia, Ohio, Tennessee, all Texas, all these places. That's going to mean a lot for the jobs program in the U.S., right? This is going to create lots of jobs, which is important for the United States. But these things are also important for Korea in the sense that they're going to be able to produce their high-end technological stuff and their high-end goods in the United States, not in China, right? Where they have had all sorts of difficulties. And this, you know, whether it's EVs or it's chips, I mean, this fits well with the Build Back Better right, initiative and the climate initiative of the Biden administration. So there's a lot of good stuff here that could make this a pretty good summit. If the Koreans just hang everything on whether they're going to get vaccines in the second quarter of 2021, they're going to take a very good summit and make it into a bad one. So it's a bit of a gamble because they really raised expectations on this particular piece of it when there's so many other good things that could come in the summit. Now, I, I don't know how that's going to turn out. Hopefully it'll turn out fine. But there is a lot of good stuff that could come out of the summit. Thank you both for all this tremendous insight into the summit. We'll be watching to see what the outcome is. And I think we're all a lot smarter heading into this summit than we were before listening to this podcast. So thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. 
If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.